when you see something that doesn't quite feel right, when you get that like gut feeling something's weird, I always say like pull on the thread. Just mm-hmm. like do like another three questions of investigation of what maybe could have happened there. And 80% of the time it's nothing. And 20% of the time you figure out that there is a much bigger problem. Welcome to the Super Managers Podcast, where we interview leaders from all walks of life to tease out the habits, thought patterns, learnings, and experiences that help them be extraordinary at the fine craft of management. Our goal is to bring you the lessons and the insights so that you don't have to learn through your own mistakes, but so that you can shortcut your way to being a great leader. This podcast is brought to you by Fellow, a software platform that helps managers and their teams work better together. Check it out at www.fellow.app. Hey, fellow managers and leaders out there. My name is Aiden and I'm CEO at fellow.app. Today, I'm excited to share with you a conversation I had with Michelle Romano, the co-founder and president of ClearBank. Michelle is a serial entrepreneur who started five companies before the age of 33. She's a dragon on CBC's Dragon's Den TV show. She previously co-founded Snap Saves, which was acquired by Groupon in 2014, and Bytopia, a platform with 2.5 million subscribers that acquired six of their competitors. Michelle is considered one of the 100 most powerful women in Canada and was listed as the only Canadian on Forbes magazine's Millennials on a Mission list. In this episode, Michelle shares some great insights on the importance of building a culture of radical candor, trusting employees to make data-driven decisions, and hiring empathetic people. So without further ado, here's Michelle Romano on another episode of the Super Managers Podcast. Michelle, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Um, yeah, this is awesome. And, you know, we were just chatting before this. You you come to Ottawa often. This isn't your first time. Yeah, for sure. This is uh, this is an important part of Canada, an important part of the tech ecosystem as well. Yeah, it's really great to have you here. You know, I, I've been very excited to, to have this conversation, particularly uh, with you, because, I mean, you've been at least, you know, when looking at it, you started five companies before you were 33. <laughs> Uh, you know, one of the questions I had from the get-go was, have you ever worked for anyone else? Like, have you ever had a manager or have <laughs> you had to just learn to be a manager from, from day one? Well, it's it's a very good question and it's um, not true. You always have a manager. You know, if you're right. an entrepreneur, you think you work for yourself, but you oftentimes end up working for your employees and your shareholders and your board and a lot of different people. Uh, behind that. And so regardless of where you are, you kind of always have a boss. But you know, one of the unique part of my experience is that I have had a couple big pieces of corporate experience. And so, you know, I started my first business, this caviar company right at a school, figured out the worldwide supply of caviar was down by 95% because we had overfished the Caspian Sea. Hmm. So it was crazy enough to move out to New Brunswick and build a fishery from scratch. That's, That's insane. literally That's everything cool. it sounds like. Boats, fishermen, my hands knee deep in fish, the wow. whole nine yards. And our thesis was right. Chefs couldn't find the products. We had no problem selling it. But we went into this massive recession in 2008. And so the recession got so bad. I mean, first of all, it was impossible to be 21 years old selling the world's most superfluous luxury product. Right. We tried some other ideas that didn't really work very well. And so I ended up taking a job as the director of strategy at Sears. Oh, wow. And so truly corporate. Truly corporate. Yeah. Um, For over a year, I... um, I saw e-commerce blow up there. It gave me a lot of the ideas for what I wanted to do next. But, but truly, I you know 
presented to the board. I had to appreciate what it was like to work in this massive internal organization and fight for resources. And so that was, I think, pretty critical. And I had, you know, one incredible manager and one probably not so good manager when I was there uh, that I took that I took learnings away from. I remember, you know, one of my managers there. Um, like would walk in in the morning and not say hi to me. And I oh, always wow. just thought it was so, I'm like, I'm like, are you embarrassed you're late? Or are you just like mean or you don't like get it? But like, I like walk in and I like, I say hello to everyone because mm-hmm. I actually remember mm-hmm. what it felt like to have the boss walk by and, and not acknowledge that I was there. So I remember part of that experience, you know, I ended up building um, Bytopia and then SnapSaves and SnapSaves eventually got acquired by Groupon. Right. And by the time we had built the Groupon team, I mean, this was a this was a massive company yeah. at that point. Right. Um, and so then I got to have that experience of integrating the product uh, on, you know, a, a newer and faster growing tech company. But certainly it was a corporate experience as well. So yeah. I've definitely had... Um, my share of of bad and amazing bosses and people that I really try to take things yeah, away from. Yeah, so, no, I mean, that you know, it's so interesting because, like, I think for, for a lot of people that do become entrepreneurs and, like, that's the first thing that they do, but by not having that corporate experience and, and really having a true boss in that sense, yeah. you kind of don't know what feels good and what doesn't feel good. So that's really interesting that you picked up on that. Yeah. When was the first time that you led a team? I kind of get the feeling that it probably wasn't when you started your first con- company. It must have been, like, earlier, maybe in school, or, like, how did you know that you were good at leading teams? So my first big team was actually at the Tea Room. So I started this little sustainable coffee shop on campus Mm -hmm. um, at Queen's University. It's still there 11 years later. And I remember, you know, every student wants to work three hours once a week. And so we had a staff of 80 people Mm -hmm. that staffed this coffee shop. And I remember that was kind of the first time that I had the experience of, you know, the, the ups and downs of really managing people. Right. And so, I mean, you know, you talk a lot about, you know, failure and learning from that. Yeah. What are some things that if you look back on it, just from a leadership perspective that you'd say, you know, if I were to go back, I'd do that different. Or you just might have gotten it right from, from the get-go. Who knows? No. Oh my gosh. We, I made so many, I think I made so many mistakes. I think I probably always veered on the over-trusting side versus mm-hmm. the micromanaging side. Right. And we all, that's a spectrum and you, yes. you got you to gotta play within it. But I think being too trusting early on led to some big problems that I had later. Mm-hmm. And so I think I now use the like, trust but verify. And the easiest way to actually do this is when you see something that doesn't quite feel right, when you get that like gut feeling something's weird, I always say like pull on the thread. Just mm-hmm. like do like another three questions of investigation of what maybe could have happened there. And 80% of the time it's nothing. And 20% of the time you figure out that there is a much bigger problem. And some of them are malice and some of them are actually just, you know, people didn't have any context to understand that what was going was wrong. And I think this is one of the things that you always have to veer on the side of being a little overly trusting a startup because you have few people, you have to move really quickly. People have access to all sorts of information and data and everything. And so I think that that was probably one of my first you know, leadership, team management things that I that I really had to learn. Do you think that, like, you know, having worked in also the corporate setting and, and now obviously in startup life with all these companies, yeah. this concept of trust and, you know, veering more towards trust than, than micromanagement, I get the feeling that that's not the case in most of corporate America. Oh, not at all. I mean, there's, there's provision and caging, and I just remember being... A, 
at some of these big companies and you're like fighting to get invited to a meeting, right? right. Like, I mean, you at Clearbank, I mean, you could probably walk into any meeting if you wanted to. Right. I mean, it's not a good use of your time and it's probably boring. Um, but the point is, is we try and be really transparent with our team because when people have good data, they make better decisions. Mm-hmm. And when you're constantly explaining why you're doing things, people can figure out how to add a lot of value to that. And so, you know, it, we do a couple of things every week, but one of the things we do is um, is a sprint plan on Monday where everyone, all the big teams in the company talk about what they're going to do for the week. Mm-hmm. And... You know, in that, one of the things that I try and do is, well, this is why this is important. This is why, you know, integrating this vendor is important. This is why we're doing that. Because think about it. I mean, we've added 100 people in the last four months. There's a lot of people that have very little context on what the priorities are and what was important. But if you constantly give them the reasons why, they align themselves into doing what's also important for the company. And so you're really teaching people how to add you know, the maximum amount of value. Yeah. I mean, that's really interesting because I think a lot of people talk about this notion of transparency. Yeah. Um, and, and I feel like it's the sort of thing that probably in the tech world and then the startup world people talk more about. Yeah. Why do you think transparency is so important? Because I was certainly there. There was a time where I used to work at Nortel. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't exist anymore. Uh, but I felt that, you know, this concept of just getting access to whatever information, there was, you know, privileged information and then there was other information. Yeah. And uh, I remember back in the day when our first company got acquired, um, you know, it's interesting going from the person who has all the information to now going into a larger company and not having all the information. It's just like a completely different world. Um, So what is it that, you know, makes you want to keep information transparent? You mentioned like anyone can walk into any meeting and so on and so forth. Like what is the the main advantage? I mean, I don't think people often do that, but you could certainly do that, I guess, if you wanted to. (laughs) Right, yeah. Yeah. Um, What is the main advantage in being transparent? Why should everyone do it? Like those that are in, in, you know, the rest of the corporate world, why should they adopt that philosophy of... yeah. Um, you know, and I, I, I want to appreciate that as you scale, it gets harder and harder to be perfectly transparent because, you know, there's a lot of nuance in data and there's a lot of things that go wrong that could be very damaging. Um, and one of the lines that I always love is loose lips sink ships, right? There's a lot of right. things that you're working on that, that you don't want to share. But I think, you know, generally when you treat people as responsible adults and you give them access to the information that is there, they can make really good decisions. Mm-hmm. And when you don't give them access to that information, it, it, it's really hard to explain some of your decisions, which then leads to this entire circle of not trusting management and not trusting leadership and not, like most people in companies are trying to make the very best decisions they make with the data they have. But if they have bad data, they often make bad decisions. And you can't figure out, again, back to this idea of why. Like, why am I doing things? Like, one of my biggest pieces of career advice for people is, like, show up in an organization and within the first month or the first three months, figure out the three things that are going to, like, move the needle and then just do those. Mm -hmm. Because when you're, like, the boss and walking around the office, like, you can't have deep relationships with everyone. It's just, it's it's a numbers problem. And so, but you know the top two or three things that everyone did. And so sometimes we all get caught up in our personal lives and, like, you know, not not personal lives, but just, like, the the part of work that's, like, responding to emails, going through tasks, resolving, you know, little issues versus, like, what are the three things I can sink my teeth into? And so I think that, back to your comment of transparency, giving people the right information and why you're doing things 
gives other people the opportunity to take initiative and solve the problems that are most important to the company and really understand those. Yeah. And so we try and be really transparent around why we're doing things, when we made big mistakes and why we made those big mistakes, what are the big risk factors in the business so people can be like thinking about those. I think the other thing on transparency that that has really worked for us is you know, we have scaled from 40 people at the beginning of this year to now 200. And Andrew and I very quickly figured out that as we scaled, there's just a lot of office gossip that right. starts to happen. Yes. And so really tried to instill this idea of radical candor on our teams. And our idea of radical candor, and everyone has a slightly different definition of this, but our idea is, first of all, you have to come to work and you have to care about your colleagues. Mm-hmm. That you you have to you have to care because if you don't care, then like why are you here? <laughs> it's right. like if you don't care about the company and the people you work with, you should find somewhere else because there is somewhere else that that you can feel that you know pull to. So then, if you care about your colleagues, when something goes wrong, you have the choice to ignore it mm-hmm. or gossip about it. Ignore it and then go to your friend and say, "Hey, can you believe this person said this? That's so annoying." Or you have the choice to ask them and to tell the truth and to be like, hey, you know, you just said that, it really bothered me. And that has to come from a place of caring because the easiest thing to do is to either ignore it or gossip about it. It is hard to have hard conversations. It is hard to tell the truth. But as a result of this, I mean, the first thing that we found is that 80 to 90% of things that happen in the workplace are true miscommunications. Right. That's that's amazing. Like people just say things we don't have the same language or the same context or the same stories or grew up in the same families. And so sometimes it's like, oh no, of course he didn't mean it like that. Yeah. And then on the 10% that are real conflicts, you have the opportunity to resolve those. And so this was a huge unlock for us. This mm. actually took us, Andrew and I, from having to police a lot of these workplace arguments and, you know, this person said this and this person isn't taking responsibility for this and something, 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 to really being like, now we have a culture where if I go to you to talk about someone else, you actually have to look at me and be like, let's go talk to them together. Hmm. Like, that's the norm. And one of the things that people don't talk a lot about in culture a lot is that you can write whatever you want on the walls, but the norms are the most powerful thing. The, the general way of just people, how people are generally doing something is, is really what, what ends up mattering. So that's really interesting. I ha- have a more tactical question then yeah. on, on that same notion. Yeah, so of someone comes to you mm-hmm. um, and starts talking about someone else. Yeah. If, if, the, if the modality is like we're always going to go and walk to this other person so this conversation yeah. can be had in a group, how do you get informed? Just going back to the you know trust and verify, like yeah, yeah. how do you know that the other person is, for example, doing a lousy job? And like right. if, if people start to assume that if they talk to you, then it's going to be revealing to the other person. Like, does that stop them from wanting to talk to you? And, and how do you know when someone's truly not performing on a team? Okay, so there's a lot there. So how do you get people to talk to you is largely your responsibility based on your reactions. If you are going to, you know, like get really upset when you hear a bad piece of information and overreact to a lot of things, it's going to be very, very hard for you to get the information you're looking for from internal from internal things. Um, so I think that's probably a greater predictor. And I mean, again, these are management rules. Right. None of them are black and white, right? right? So someone comes to you and they say, 
I'm having a real problem with this and this is very severe and this is like, you know, a huge workplace problem. Like you're not bringing that person in right now. You're, right. you're creating a, a plan and a structure to deal with that. I think what we're just, what I'm trying to talk about is like the general day-to-day norms around, I didn't agree with this product decision. I don't like the fact that this person went on vacation when we had a mission critical deadline. I, right. Those are the types of things that you can deal with. And I mean, you can tell them, be like, oh, thanks for telling me. Why don't we just go talk to that person? And I'm happy to be a part yeah. of that conversation to see if we can resolve this quickly. Mm-hmm. And a lot of this, I think, has stemmed from our increased reliance on digital communication. Like we all think we're being so efficient using Slack and text messages, but we've taken away. I mean, remember like all of this is like, you know, it's mostly body language and that it's the tone of your voice and that it's the words you say. Yes. And so we're restricting most of our workplace communications to the 20% of words that we say. And then we're curious why we're confused or, right. or we have misunderstandings. And it's because you don't, it's hard to tell intentions, it's hard to tell a lot of other things. And so I think, um, you know, that's generally a good working rule. It obviously doesn't apply. Yeah. apply no, I, th- I, th- I think it's super smart. And, you know, you go back to setting the norms. Yeah. So when you do that the first time to someone who reports to you, the next time they do it to the next person. Totally. And then it all of a sudden, that's just the way it works yeah. across the company. Yeah. I think that's you, awesome. You should never underestimate how power mimicry is in groups of people. Mm-hmm. And I have observed this from the funniest to the, the least funniest things in my career. But I mean, truly, like I remember even eight years ago, I would, it was a small office. There was 30 of us, 40 of us, and we'd hire interns. Mm-hmm. And inevitably, like the third week into the intern starting to work, they would start dressing like me. Oh, really? And I just remember <laughs> always like thinking this was hilarious. I'm like, I'm pretty sure I own a pair of shoes that looks exactly like that or like that type of jacket. Um, and it, I think it almost happens involuntarily. Mm-hmm. It is such a human reaction to copy each other in some way. And so I think you have to always you know, remind yourself that, that you have to hold yourself to the exact same standards that you would want your team to do. Yeah, and I think it goes, it, it's so interesting, or sometimes you'll say something and you mm-hmm. didn't really mean very much about it and totally. people just, just walked away with, that is now the gospel, let's just go and do that. Totally. Yeah, it goes totally. very far. Um, you had this, um, this interesting quote that um, I just want to bring up because I thought mm-hmm. it was it was fascinating. Um, so you said that great leaders are able to constantly p- uh, paint the amazing vision of what is not there but what could be and conceal their own fears because the reality is when you lead, you have no idea what is next. So I can attest to that being yeah. 100% factual. Mm-hmm. My question is, how does the team perceive like this notion of you know going into uncertain waters and like how do you balance the uh you know the truth is we don't know how this is going to work out versus i'm the strong leader and this is going to work out yeah it's it's really tough and this one is like very much dependent on on where you mentally are because there are days at work that i can be incredibly optimistic and there are days at work where it's just you are you are in the shitstorm of something happening, and you are very pessimistic about yeah, what the future. Yeah, you just got an email like. that's like, yeah. "Oh my god, something's <laughs> blowing up, and something's exploding." So, you know, I think that it's important for to to paint kind of this, you know, vision picture. This is something that like my co-founder Andrew D'Souza is amazing at is painting like what the world can look like, and then actually putting the structure for people to to take risks and to do experimentation. And so your question was a little bit, well, how do you get people to take risk? 
And I don't think I've ever thought about it like that. I've thought about how do you create experimental structures that, that just work. And so I remember, you know, there was a point in ClearBank's history where, you know, our first Uber product wasn't working particularly well. And so there was 10 of us. Yeah. We divided the team into basically teams of three people each and we worked on three different projects and we created code names for them one of them was called turbo beaver one of them was called um, grizzly they were all called animal names and we just said look we're gonna we're gonna try three different experiments and then we're gonna see what works and we're gonna double down on what works and then when you do that team environments take over people get competitive people start working on other things it's not like they think about they're taking risks and starting a new product line they think about how do we get to the next evolution of of what we are supposed to be and so i think even as this company is scaled and it's becomes as you get bigger it becomes harder and harder to take risks because you're just naturally larger but how do we still create those teams that you know don't have a lot of structure in the organization can put things out to market very quickly and and keep that experimentation alive but yeah. look, there's no question that there's some days that it's really scary as a leader to say, we're going to go do this. Um, and that confidence comes from the fact that every other time in my career, I wasn't, I didn't know the future at any, with any better pieces of information, but I still could create something there. And so you're like, even if I don't quite know this, I think we can get there. Right. Yeah, no, that's awesome. I think it just goes back to the transparency. People understand why things are being done. Mm-hmm. And if they're part of the process and it is an experiment and things, you know, sometimes work and they don't. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that that's a very interesting way to do that. And I think it goes back to this point of you have this saying, which is, you know, treat employees like entrepreneurs. Yeah. So my question is, you know, for, for people out there who've never been entrepreneurs themselves, who yeah. are, you know, somewhere... Uh, you know, managing teams or leading teams, what does that mean? And like, practically speaking, what is your advice to them on leading their teams? So, you know, we built ClearBank as a company that was like built by founders for founders. And we want to transform the way that we're, we're giving capital to founders around the world. And so the best way that we thought about doing that was actually hiring people that could be empathetic to what founders were going through. Right. Because one of our you know, great human limitations is we often only have true empathy and understanding for things that we've, we've actually personally experienced. It's just, I yes. mean, we can imagine and we can you know, get ourselves into a movie, but until you've lived it, it's, it's just still a totally different experience. And so that was one of the reasons why hiring entrepreneurs worked so well for us is because they could instantly empathize with our customers who were other founders. And so that became a huge part of our culture. The other thing is the background of being an entrepreneur teaches you really quickly that the world owes you nothing. Like literally nothing. Right. <laughs> like it's yes. just, it's like the world doesn't owe you a sale or a great person or, you know, a great partnership. You have to, you have to go fight for that every day. And so I think when you bring in those people, they come in with this view that, that, you know, we're going to work really hard and try and make this work. Um, you know, how do you build more entrepreneurial cultures if you don't have entrepreneurs? Right. I think you do some of the things that like breed really healthy competition, right? That's one of the entrepreneurs typically thrive off competition and Mm -hmm. how they can be improving their businesses. And so if you can create that in a really friendly way between teams, I found that's been really successful. Anything that you can do to get your teams closer to understanding the customers is very important. And even if it's a couple people on that team that have that experience that can share that or putting your people out in your field and with your customers, like that's where you get really transformational thinking about being them. Like the only reason 
that I could have built ClearBank like this is, again, I didn't understand anything about financial services before I started this business, but I did deeply understand how hard life was for founders on this fundraising topic. Right. And then you could you could kind of bend the rest of the world uh, around that and figure out the other things. But but understanding the customer ended up being the greatest insight that we had. Yeah, and I, I think there's such a nugget of wisdom in there, which is, you know, you're you're hiring people that basically already empathize and already mm-hmm. understand the problem at such a deep level uh, that it just makes sense. They don't have to be taught from like the ground up yeah. on, on how to do this stuff. Mm-hmm. So I think that's uh, that's incredibly wise. Um, you know, one other thing is that you know you often say teamwork is easier when you get to choose your teammates. Yeah. And you know, there's this incredible story of you uh, in one of your last companies, I believe it was Snap Saves, yeah. where I think you you hire this employee. He starts out as customer support, and you know, before it's all done and before you guys uh, get acquired, he's CEO of the company, mm-hmm. and he's in his twenties. Yeah. How do you recognize like that level of talent? Like, do you did you see that in this person when you first hired him as like a customer support person? Yeah. Did he show it? Like, how do you recognize that level of talent and get to give them that level of responsibility to grow that quickly? So I think this is one of like let's start off just structurally. You have a huge advantage in a startup because you're very close to the founders, and so right. he was basically the the fifth person on the SnapSaves team. And so mm-hmm. we got to interact with him really closely. The other thing is that we do this thing in in corporate America or corporate Canada where we create structures that are designed for retention. So we create, you know, you are an analyst for two years, and then you are an associate for three years, and then you are this for three years. And these are all designed, and these companies are designed to make you think that you are not good enough or you cannot learn a skill unless you are doing something for two years. Right. But that's bullshit because yeah. everyone learns at completely different paces. This is a retention tool and it should be looked at like that. I mean, you know, the, the big consulting firms have, you know, practices where they'll say, oh, well, you know, you just, you just need to improve on this one thing. Right. And so if you just work here for a little bit longer, we can really get to improve the one thing. But that's against everything I know about, about outstanding individuals, which is they actually have a lot of one things that are not very good at. And then they have a couple superpowers that are so incredible that they can take the, the world by storm with those. And so I would always argue that, you know, as an individual, it is far more powerful to be doubling down on your strengths than trying to eliminate your weaknesses. And some of your weaknesses can become such Achilles heels that you have to deal with them. But generally as a practice, think about how to build superpowers, not mitigate strengths or like, or mitigate weaknesses. So I think with um, with this employee at Snapsys, and I mean, look, when, when we brought him over to Groupon, he was the youngest employee there that Groupon had ever hired. Oh, that's like insane. 8,000 <laughs> people. Like, he couldn't legally drink in America. Like, oh, wow. This is how, how quick his thing. And I think that that's, that's the power of working with a small company who needs great people is you're willing to give out a lot of responsibility when people are rising to the task. And then we were also investing a lot of time in working together and and building and helping him grow as an individual. And so you can get a really symbiotic relationship if you're willing to kind of take the risk, go to a startup early on, and, and really learn and grow from great founders. Yeah, I think this is all tying together. It's it's this concept of uh, being transparent, allowing people to get all the information, obviously treating them as entrepreneurs, 
giving them like ownership and then obviously letting them thrive. And, and when they do, I mean, the organization as a whole benefits. Mm-hmm. So yeah, mm-hmm. that's awesome. I, you know, just to, to, to kind of wrap things up, um, you know, earlier today you, you, we were chatting and you, you talked about having recently read uh, Little Black Stretchy Pants, yeah. uh, incredible book, uh, one of my favorites. And, and certainly there's, there's a lot of uh, lessons there. Like yeah. what was one of, the, one of the takeaways for you or one of the reasons that, that you thought that book was really interesting? Why did you like it? Um, I thought it was um, it was really cool to see um, this this basically grounds up movement mm-hmm. of like how grassroots the the you know basically the, the story was, of yeah. Lululemon was and mm-hmm. how they went like uh, yoga studio by yoga studio and they had this concept of supergirls and yeah. like I thought all that stuff was uh, was incredible but you know here's a guy that again like uh, was uh, you know learned a lot of this stuff on his own yeah. Um. I, I just thought the book was really honest. Mm. And I get really irritated when people tell stories in kind of not the right order or the right way. It's really easy when you look back 10 years to be like, had a great idea and we did it and it's this huge success story. But that doesn't do anyone any favors. It doesn't teach anyone anything. Because the reality is, is most companies are typically on the verge of bankruptcy, not for their first year, for their first 10 years of existence. Right. And there's really big things that go wrong in even the most successful companies. And if we don't talk about those, and if we don't talk about how hard that's going to be, and how you're basically going to want to walk away from your company like 20 times yes. <laughs> before it's a success story, you make all the other people that are going through it the first time feel like aliens, right? Like the, mm-hmm. you have to make them, you have to remind them. So I thought I thought that was one of the most important parts about that book is he's just really honest. And I think, you know, when you read that book, you can tell that there is, you know, you're like, well, oh, someone's going to be pretty pissed off when you yeah. read that statement. Yeah, definitely. But I think that's an important part of the story. I mean, he did create a whole movement and a generation and a category. And he's really open with, you know, how he thinks he lost out to some of their competition and, and what that was over. Um, I think his ability to kind of like spot trends is like was fascinating to see and how he, you know, even in the early days picked up on, you know, the anti-smoking movement and like all sorts of other things. And then I think there's a huge part of that story for me that resonated, which is even with one of the most successful brands and eight stores, you know, he's still putting his house on the line to get funding to grow. And so, you know, if we can be a small part of solving that solution with ClearBank, I think we'll be in a really good place. That's awesome. That's awesome. Very cool. So, uh, Michelle, thank you. This has been awesome. Oh, good. It was um, nice to be here. I, you know, any parting words for the folks out there that are leading teams, you know, any books or resources that you think they should check out, mm-hmm. like anything that's made an impact, a blog post, yeah. or, or what they should do in the trenches? I really liked this book called The Culture Code. You oh, one? no, I haven't, um, actually. It's... Uh, I thought it was a really excellent book on managing teams, and it has great antidotes in it. Um, so I thought that one was really interesting. You know, that book opens up with this story, and I love this. It's like, you know, they give, um, you know, they do one of those challenges where they give you like 10 strings of spaghetti and some marshmallows, and they tell you to build the highest tower. Right. And they do this with a group of lawyers and a group of MBAs and a group of kindergarten students. And, you know, in 20 minutes, you see who can build the tallest tower. And the kindergarten students always win. That's insane. <laughs> That's insane. Yeah. They, like, just start there. The kindergarten students build a taller tower than the lawyers and the MBAs. That's, yeah, mind-blowing. And 
they really look at these interactions on what has created successful teamwork here. Mm -hmm. And what the kindergarten students do is that they just start trialing an airline. Let's try this. Let's try this. Oh, what are we doing here? Oh, maybe we just like do this. And they, they really do this like very open, you know, non-ego type of collaboration. And they do the same thing with the lawyers and the MBAs. The lawyers are actually the worst. And the first 10 minutes is people trying to figure out who's in charge. Like, I want to lead this team, and I want to lead this mm. team, and who's exerting authority, and who's going to make the, the tower structure? Like, come on, man, you're building a spaghetti tower with marshmallows. Like, yeah. this, this should be this. And so they've, they've shown, and they talk about what it takes to build a workplace where you can actually have those interactions, and you can, you can break down those barriers. They talk about that in, in pilots that get into, you know, situations where planes are crashing, and that in... You know, typical. They look at typical um, Asian cultures where there's a very strong, like an alpha. And yeah, like a, a power distance. There's yeah. a huge power distance where you know they're not collaboratively solving a problem. One person is scared to speak up, and the other one's trying to make all the decisions without anything. And those results in far more plane crashes and fatalities than the two pilots that are collaboratively being like, "Let's try yes. this. What if this is happening? What can I move in really fast, short order succession?" And so I think. There's a, there was a lot of wisdom in that book around how do you create that as team scale and as teams get bigger um, and how to do that. So it's just maybe a little tidbit of that one. I also like Principles by Ray Dalio. has yes, really good ideas for teamwork. Book. And on kind of the more personal side, but I found um, Atomic Habits was really good on mm. you know building those habits into both myself and then, then the team I had. Awesome. We'll have all of those in the show notes. Cool. Michelle, this was great. Thank you so much. And uh, we'll see you guys in the next episode. And that's it for today. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Supermanagers podcast. You can find the show notes and transcript at www.fellow.app/supermanagers. If you like the content, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so you can get notified when we post the next episode. And please tell your friends and fellow managers about it. It'd be awesome if you could help us spread the word about the show. See you next time.